Spotify has 40 million paid subscribers out of over uh, 100 million monthly active users. The active user to paid subscriber conversion rate then is somewhere between 25 to 40%, which is unheard of. This is a astronomical conversion rate. 80% of all users on Spotify use it multiple times per week. So I just want to be clear that they're using it multiple times per week. <laughs> uh, that, is, uh, that is really hard to get in uh, the software world. Hello, and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Austin, I'm a senior UX designer at HubSpot. And I'm Dexter, I'm a growth and monetization manager at Dropbox. And today we're gonna be talking about launching and growing a freemium product. It's something that I've wanted to bring on the show for a while, but I wanted to wait until I could get the perfect expert on to discuss that. And that's what we have today with Dexter. So Dexter focuses on converting users to Dropbox Pro subscribers uh, for Dropbox, which we know is one of the most powerful freemium products on the market right now. Before that, he was at Creative Live and Udemy. He's really focused on SaaS products, tech in Asia, and he actually speaks Mandarin Chinese. So we've got some pretty interesting perspectives that are coming in here. My favorite part of this story is that we actually met at Inbound in November, which Inbound is the annual event that HubSpot puts on every year. We were both at a bar. <laughs> and we, it's, it's so crazy. You're just walking around. You, you meet people uh, at bars or around the venue, and then you end up talking freemium, and it's like, we need to put this on a podcast. So <laughs> that's yeah, precisely I, what we're doing. I today. love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, um, I, I want to thank you know, HubSpot, but thank you, Austin. Um, for having me on the show. I think this is a really cool uh, podcast. Really awesome that you know you can talk about uh, growth-oriented things to you know tech professionals. Definitely something that I wish I could have had you know when I first started uh, working on this kind of stuff. Oh man, well thank you so much for coming on the show. We're really uh, lucky to have you on. So I'm I'm excited to dig into this stuff. Same here. Same here. So I think that the first thing that we can kind of start off with is like defining what freemium is because it's a little bit unclear what actually constitutes a freemium product, what makes it different from other SaaS products. So Dexter, what would, yep. what would you say freemium is to you? Yep, um, so freemium for me is kind of a product where the pricing strategy is where you're giving away a part of your product uh, for free while you're offering your premium uh, product. Uh, for a price. So while that free product is usually um, more limited in scope than the premium product, uh, you know, the the time duration you can actually use that free product is unlimited. So it's different from a free trial. Uh, a free trial is where the user is able to test out that product or service at no cost, but for a limited amount of time. Free trial uh, will typically lead to the premium product, though, uh, which is kind of similar to a premium product. So you do have to get those two uh, clearly separated. Yep. So I think that for me, like, there are definitely clear times when it makes sense for a company 
to use and build a freemium product and when it makes sense for them to sort of keep away from it. Like there's benefits to it and there's downsides to it and you definitely wanna be really clear in aligning with those benefits and accounting for those downsides when you decide to build and grow a freemium product. So on the benefits side, we know that there's a really, really low barrier to conversion because you're offering the product for free, so it's really easy to get people into the product. This is something that, of course, Dropbox does an excellent job at. We know uh, that the product is so widespread, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody, especially in the United States, that doesn't know of Dropbox or know somebody that uses it or use it themselves. It's a household name. Uh, so that's one of the really big benefits that you get to freemium is you can reach a much bigger market with more organic amplification because it's free and there's such a low barrier to conversion. And then with that, you can focus on more long-term nurturing and optimization. So you don't have to make the sale as soon as the user lands on your site. The downside, however, is that you're going to be facing a pretty hefty cost to build and maintain this product that you're actually not going to be directly making money off of. And it's gonna be hard to make that balance between the paying and non-paying customers because essentially those paying customers have to both account for the paid product that you're creating, but also help float the R&D and hosting and marketing and everything for the free product as well. So there's a real focus on keeping the cost low and in a lot of cases, you're not going to be able to provide support or any of those more like premium benefits that you would offer with a paid product. Yep. And uh, the one thing I will add to that is uh, that as you scale a freemium product, uh, the costs typically get distributed across a larger base of users. So the incremental cost per user that you're adding actually decreases, hopefully over time. And that's one of the benefits uh, to freemium. Of course, you need a large base of users to begin with uh, to even start considering freemium as a, as a business play. Uh, but once you do have that large base and continue to grow it, um, then it's really beneficial from the margin side of the business. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is that you can start to spread out that cost across all of those users and have the, the individual costs go down as you continue to acquire so many free and paid users together. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So I think that now that we know what freemium is and what the benefits and downsides are, it might make sense to kind of dig into some of the different models because there's actually a lot of different approaches to freemium. So Dropbox seems to take on more of a traditional freemium model where they basically have this free forever but feature limited product uh, that leads to a premium product. And the key is that it's really, really useful in the free version and in the premium version. We'll find that in other freemium models that uh, they actually make sure that the free product is not quite so easy to use to get users to upgrade. But in the more traditional model, like what we see coming out of Dropbox or LogMeIn or MailChimp, it's a free forever, very uh, usable product that then just leads to a more premium product when you want to upgrade specific pieces of it. Yep, um, and it seems like there's also other freemium models, like you know you can uh, target the individual first um, as a free user and then 
uh, try and get the organization or their company uh, to pay for the product afterwards. So usually in this case, the first individual adopters in the company um, are used to grow that product within the company um, to get that organization to pay for it. And in Dropbox's case, this is uh, kind of how we think about the uh, Dropbox business growth as well, uh, where you know we already have all these free um, consumers paying for Dropbox and they're bringing Dropbox into work. Um, and then that's getting the uh, IT department's attention that a lot of their knowledge workers are already using Dropbox. And that makes it easy for um, us to pitch to um, those uh, heads of the IT offices, the CIOs of those companies later, um, because so so many of their workers are already using Dropbox. Um, some other companies that uh, go with this approach um, are Yammer and Amazon Web Services, and also as well as HubSpot. Yeah, we're doing uh, the same thing with our HubSpot sales product. That's correct. But what I really love there that, that you brought out was how it sounds like, and this is similar to what we're doing at HubSpot, with this strategy, you're basically saying, we're going to give this free product away to uh, users that we know are going to give us an in to more users or an in to a company, if you will. So that is to say that basically, once you get a couple users in a company that you want to break into, they're going to start using the product. They're going to be telling other people in the company about it. You can start collecting data on them, information about, like, is this a company that we really want to upgrade to our paid product? Uh, what, how much potential do we think there is? How likely do we think they are to upgrade? And then once you determine that that's something you want to move forward with, at that point, you have a ton of information for your sales team or if you're doing like a, a product qualified lead funnel in your, in your product where uh, basically people can upgrade touchlessly through the product. You've got all of this information that you can go off of. You already have an in to the company and you can use the freemium product and that data to give you a little bit more of a warm sale, if you will. Yeah, and to your point on the warm sale, Austin, um, I, I want to highlight that this is different from the traditional sales approach, which is usually where the salesperson goes directly to the C-level executive and then pitches the software, uh, typically the CIO, um, and tries to make the sale top down as opposed to this growth through, uh, you know, first distributing the, uh, the the product for free to individuals. This kind of method is more bottoms up. Yeah, yeah. So you're starting with more of like a grassroots movement in the company where it's like, oh, I'm using HubSpot sales too. And, and the, you know, the guy down the hall is using HubSpot sales. And now all of a sudden you've got a bunch of people using it. And it's like, maybe we should adopt this as a company. It's something that happens more from like internally from the bottom up, as opposed to a sale that happens with like one key individual at the top of the company. And then they're imposing the software on the rest of the employees. Totally. And it's an exciting, uh, it's an exciting shift in, uh, I think, how... Uh, SaaS companies and software companies in general are doing sales. Yeah, it really is. So it, 
there's a few other ways that you can approach freemium beyond this sort of traditional or company through individual approach. There is also uh, an add-on model, which is basically where you have a completely free and functional core product, but there are available add-ons or upgrades that you can purchase. So the main product works fine for the majority of users, and a lot of the users are just going to use the free version, uh, but there's going to be available paid upgrades that they can purchase when they become power users or when they want to do something special that's going to require uh, more R&D from your team or more resources. So some good examples for this would be uh, Skype does this pretty well. Most people know Skype as a completely free product, but it actually has paid add-ons. And AVG, uh, the vi virus software, most people use the completely free version of AVG, but there are paid add-ons for that product as well. So that's something that we've been exploring at, at HubSpot too as uh, different upgrade paths where you can offer a free product but monetize it through its power users, basically. Nice. And an another category of those freemium products is where you have a completely separate side product uh, that's free and functional. Um, it can be used to uh, get first exposure to the company, generate leads, or just grow its top of the funnel, um, grow its reach to a wider audience. So in this case, there's no direct upgrade path into the product itself uh, because the paid product is probably separate, but uh, the goal is just to draw in new audience. So uh, examples of this are uh, Sketchbook um, by Autodesk and also HubSpot has a website grader which you can use completely for free too. Yep, it's basically, this has been an interesting play for us where we have like a bunch of different free tools throughout the web, uh, like Website Grader, where people can go in, enter some information, uh, use the tool completely for free. And this just helps to grow the reach that our core product has, essentially. So kind of what we're seeing here is a little bit of a pattern is that actually a lot of these freemium models can be combined with each other. Uh, you'll see many companies using more than one. A couple additional approaches that you can take is uh, an ecosystem approach. This is a little bit more rare where you have a fully functional core product that's gonna sell other goods, usually through third parties. So iTunes, for example, is a completely free product that a lot of people just use to manage their music but you can also buy music through that product um, with third parties that are involved. And then you can also uh, monetize your users as like a final sort of, people don't usually think of this as a freemium model, but because it's, there isn't like direct uh, monetization from the user themselves. But uh, this is actually a way that a lot of companies approach freemium as well, which is to say, uh, if you're not going to charge your users specifically to use your product at any point, so it's completely free all the way, then what you can do is turn the user into the product. So you may have heard that sort of adage that says, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Uh, so basically, in this model, you would collect some data on your users, serve your users with ads, place some branding on your site, uh, and then that's how you monetize your free product. 
So Facebook obviously is like the most popular example of this. Spiceworks does this. OneSignal, uh, basically what they do is they allow you to have push notifications on your site, but then they collect a bunch of data from your site at the same time, and they use that in aggregate to pull a bunch of information on how the web is functioning, what the different UX patterns are, what works best for conversion. So they're basically just using data from your site. Mint.com does a similar thing. And then HelloBar as well is a completely uh, free product that will then uh, monetize its users through viral growth. Yeah. And when you think about all these different kind of uh, freemium models, uh, generally, you know, freemium because there's the free aspect to the product and the paid part of the product. There's usually some kind of limit in the middle um, where the free user signs up, you know, uses the product to a certain point and then hits that limit, which is where they're prompted to upgrade to the paid product. So some of those limitations um, include usage limits. So Dropbox, for example, limits three basic accounts by the amount of space that they have. And um, another kind of limit is a feature limit where you're using a feature up to a certain point and then you need to upgrade uh, to uh, continue using that feature or uh, to use a more advanced version of that feature. Uh, so an example in this case is Spotify where um, you can get more high quality audio as a result of upgrading to Spotify Premium. Another kind of limitation is a seat limitation. So in the Dropbox business case, uh, we you know, have new users sign up for Dropbox business, but then in order to get more seats, then they need to upgrade their, uh, their plan. Yeah. And then you can also have an approach where you don't necessarily put any limitations on the product and, and you're just monetizing it uh, through the sort of method that we just discussed, or you place some time limitations on the product, which is a little bit more free trial focused. It's not quite like freemium in the purest sense. But I think that the key is that there are several different types of limitations that you can put on your product. And then that's basically going to determine what type of model you're using. And the important thing to remember there is that depending on the type of model that you use, it will completely change your approach to the product, how you develop it, and how you acquire users. So this is like the big decision point for a lot of companies when they decide to bring on freemium is what kind of limitations are we going to put on the product? How is that going to affect our acquisition and growth strategy? And then what type of model are we going to be using as a result of that? Once you kind of decide on that, you can start to look at some other freemium products and companies and how they're structuring their plans. And there's a lot to learn from companies that have already done a really good job of this. Dexter, you've got obviously a lot of experience with Dropbox that you can share, but uh, there's some, some other companies that I think we could talk through as well, right? Like uh, Spotify, for example. Definitely. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of great freemium products out there already. Um, and definitely, you know, as you're thinking about, um, you know, should you build a freemium product or not, think about what these other companies are doing, get inspiration from them. And, you know, in the case of Spotify, uh, Spotify, it, you know, is an online music streaming application um, that's been around since 2008. And it has a plan of $9.99 per month for their premium account, or you can sign up for a family plan and have up to six people on it for $14.99 a month. And 
it's you know seen uh, record-breaking growth. Uh, especially in the online music streaming kind of space. So as of the end of 2016, Spotify has 40 million paid subscribers out of over uh, 100 million monthly active users, which well, that uh, is leads crazy. the, yeah, right? The active user to paid subscriber conversion rate then is somewhere between 25 to 40%, which is unheard of. This is a astronomical conversion rate um, for premium products, especially of this scale. And uh, a lot of that growth uh, in recent history is uh, driven by promotions. Uh, namely, they had a 99 cent for three months of Spotify premium deal uh, that they've been you know, upselling everyone too. And they've also uh, expanded their family plans for basically increasing the number of seats in their family plans up to six people. And that's what's driven the recent growth. And I'm curious to see if that growth can be sustained because a lot of these are promotional uh, kind of opportunities. Yeah. With that said, Spotify definitely fits the bill for um, a really great premium product in terms of its retention. So uh, one data point I'll highlight here is that 80% of all users um, on Spotify use it multiple times per week. So I just want to be clear that they're using it multiple times per week. <laughs> uh, that is uh, that is really hard to get in uh, the software world, um, especially in the freemium world. So once you have that kind of uh, retention, you can do a lot to... Uh, push them through upgrade paths. Right, they've got a really uh, the, sticky product there. Yeah, super sticky. Oh, and so on the cost side, though, that's where Spotify uh, might run into some challenges because uh, Spotify's in the online music business, which I'm sure you've heard is a pretty tough business to be in. Um, you have to deal with record labels and then you have to pay out a certain percentage to your artists. Uh, so it's a difficult business to gain profitability in. So despite you know growing uh, 81% year on year from 2016 or 2015 to 2016, it still lost a significant amount of money. And like we talked about earlier, you know, what makes a great freemium product uh, one of those things we discussed was that there'd be really low variable costs or, you know, as you increase the number of users, you know, you hopefully aren't spending so much uh, to keep those users on your product. And I think Spotify is a freemium product that does have a little bit of challenge in that yeah. area. This is such a heartbreaker because if you look at everything up to that cost point it's like such a healthy business they have you know totally. great pricing model a ton of subscribers but 40 percent of their total users are subscribed like that's you have 40 million paid users and 100 million monthly active users that's like your conversion rate there it's crazy to your point 25 to 40 percent depending on how you calculate it and then the fact that they've got 80 percent of their users using it multiple times per week. That's like, I mean, Dexter, what would you say for like an average freemium product? Like what percentage of users would you expect to, to be weekly active users? What's the, what types of goals do we usually look for? Yeah, definitely. Um, so 
I will speak to the conversion rate part of it first, because I, I think that's a, a super astronomical number. Um, but typically in the freemium product kind of space, most freemium products will be pretty happy with a 1% kind of you know active user <laughs> to paid subscriber conversion yep. rate. Yep. And to build a healthy business, you need more than 1%, hopefully you know between 1% to 5% for that conversion rate. But Spotify with 25 to 40% really blows that out of the water. Yeah. And yet still, they can't gain profitability and they lost $193 million in 2015, even with that 81% year over year growth, just because of the industry that they're in. It's a heartbreaker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really tough, but um, I'm really hoping to see Spotify win that market. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. <laughs> I actually just got an Amazon Echo. HubSpot gave like everybody in the company Amazon Echoes and I synced it with Spotify. Yeah. So you can you can actually sync the Amazon Echo with Spotify and like hook it up to your speakers and everything and it's really wonderful. It's like Spotify is the first, you know, real mainstream music streaming app that killed the need for pirating music, which I never thought would happen. <laughs> and as a result of it, Me too. They're, they're, it's like the way that they're getting rewarded for that is they're losing $193 million a year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have a theory. This is pure speculation, but I think with their you know phenomenal paid subscriber growth rates recently, um, they'll be able to renegotiate better terms on their payouts to you know the uh, music industry record labels in the future, and then they'll be able to hopefully you know lower their costs as a result of that. Yeah, it's like it's an inevitability because the demand for that is like it's so high, and basically the users have shown we're not going to be buying CDs anymore. We're not even going to buy stuff on iTunes. We want to be able to have access to all of the music and pay a flat rate, or we're just not going to pay anything at all. You know, um, definitely. So, yeah. And I also want to uh, go back to that retention point. You know, why is Spotify so sticky? And for me, it's that it's super easy to use and get started. It's super convenient. And once you start using Spotify, you know, you're adding music to your playlist. Uh, Spotify is recognizing what kind of music you're interested in. And then you start investing in the product. And that's, uh, that's how Spotify creates so much value. Um, over time for me. Yeah. So another company that um, I think would be worth talking about is Evernote because that is such a big player in the freemium space. It's a, if you're not familiar with Evernote, it's a note-taking app that has a big focus on productivity and syncing across devices. It kind of operates in the cloud. It's been around since 2005. Uh, and the growth has been pretty interesting on this product. Dexter, what are your thoughts on this one? Definitely. Uh, so uh, I, I want to say that, first of all, I'm an Evernote user. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and I use Evernote in uh, my everyday life. So I'm a daily active user here. Um, but uh, recently, uh, Evernote actually just increased the prices of the plans. So now plans are $34.99 per year for uh, their Plus account and $69.99 per year for their premium accounts. Um, so they're within the ballpark of what you would expect for a consumer productivity kind of app application. Um, and I want to be clear that Evernote is uh, sold to individuals um, for these plans. So Evernote gets 
a lot of lot of free users. Uh, they have 200 million free users as of the beginning of 2017, and they also have a pretty a good conversion rate for a productivity application. They previously reported uh, 3.7% active user to paid subscriber conversion rate, uh, which isn't as high as the 25 to 40% of Spotify's, but it's still really good uh, by all means in in this industry. And they also uh, previously reported that conversion for them grows over time. So as the user, you, you know, once the user signs up for Evernote in their first month of using it, uh, they're 0.5% uh, likely to convert. But then after one year of using it, they're 7% likely to convert to a paid subscriber. And in the second year, 11% likely to convert. And in if they stick around for five years, then they're 25% likely to convert to a paid subscriber. So as you can see, Evernote has a lot of sticky value because you know, once you sign up, you start writing these notes, you start organizing them, adding you know, your photos, adding your business cards, and you're organizing your life across your personal life and your work life. That investment makes the product really sticky. Yeah, yeah, that's like, that's really what I think of with a lot of good freemium products is they, the, the best freemium products find ways to get users invested in them. Uh, and in some cases, they even go so far as to own the user's data in certain ways. So I think of like my investment with Spotify. I've built a bunch of playlists, even though Apple Music offers me three months for free, aside from just the principle of me not wanting to give all of my data to Apple, it's going to be difficult for me to port all of my playlists over to Apple Music. And the same thing happens with Evernote. If you've been using Evernote for five years, imagine how many notes you have in that program, you don't want to switch your note-taking app at that point. Totally. And Evernote has even seen this phenomenon, which is even rare in the premium, uh, in the freemium world, uh, by the way, where the value to the user increases over time. So then the retention rate of the user actually grows over time. Mm -hmm. So what that looks like is, you know, can't really draw this chart right now, but basically you have uh, the percentage of returning users dip in the middle of the chart so that the percentage of the returning users increases at the tail end of the chart. So the graph looks like a smile and then they call it the smile chart. Interesting. So basically what they're seeing is that the more useful the app is, the more that it's enriched with the data that the user is putting into it, the more they're going to see their user retain over time. That's right. That's right. And on their cost side, uh, Evernote has a great gross margin business. They don't have to worry about uh, a payout to record labels or to the music industry. So their gross margin is just made up of you know, what, what's the cost of storing those notes, storing those files uh, that the users adding to their Evernotes. And with previous interviews um, with their CEO, uh, they said the gross margin is likely like higher than 50%, uh, which is phenomenal uh, for a freemium product. Cool. So I think those are some interesting products that we can kind of look at for, for companies that are doing freemium pretty well that we use in our, our everyday lives. When you get to the point where you actually want to market and grow your freemium product, how do you approach that? Like what, what would be the first things that you would think of? 
Uh huh. I uh, think about marketing a freemium product through the lens of three principles, and basically a summary of what we already discussed. Uh, but the first principle is uh, having frictionless signups, so being able to grow a really large free user base. Uh, the second principle is having a sticky product, so a product where ideally the retention of those users grows over time as the user gets more invested in the product. And the third principle is that there should be upgrade paths that are tailored to the product. So, you know, you're not trying to fit upgrade path that you see from another product um, onto your product. You're actually tailoring it to the nuances of your product. So on the first principle, frictionless signup, you know, what you typically see with uh, products is a sign up with Facebook button or sign up with Google button. And that's just to get you started immediately so that you can start getting value from the product. Um, you know, in Spotify, in both Spotify and Evernote's cases, you can see that it's super easy to get started with Facebook and Google. Yeah. And yeah. they'll even import your uh, friends and your interest so that they can start already tailoring your experience a little bit. In Spotify's case, they have a friend activity stream where you can see uh, your friend's music that, that's playing um, either real time or a few hours ago. And I actually find that really useful. Um, <laughs> I actually look at that on a, on a pretty regular basis just to see, hey, what's my friend listening to? Um, and in uh, Ever, Evernote's case, uh, they're, they're doing it more uh, through sign up through Google, where you probably have a Gmail account through work um, or personal that you can use for your Evernote. Yeah. If we remember, Spotify actually really leveraged the whole Facebook login thing when uh, they were a, a young product. They used it for viral growth. So you would sign up through Facebook. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, you could originally you could only sign up through Facebook, um, and then you would see in your Facebook feed like how many of your friends have signed up for Spotify, what they're listening to, who they're interacting with, and all of this stuff. And it was like, oh my gosh, like everybody is on Spotify. I'm going to get it too. And it kind of creates this snowball effect where eventually all you and all of your friends on Facebook are using Spotify and everybody is you know, sharing music with each other. And it creates, uh, to your point, a, a much stickier product. Definitely. So that you know, seamless sign-up experience lends to the viral growth, which lends to um, more users finding the product valuable because there's more people on it. So Spotify is a great example of a product that's inherently a little social. Mm -hmm. So as the user you know, sees more of their friends using it, um, you know, they can share music with each other. Like I've uh, definitely shared playlists with friends and um, also like snooped around on <laughs> some friends' accounts to see like what kind of playlists they're listening to. Uh, and I think that inherently social nature of Spotify definitely makes it more sticky. Yeah. Cool. And, you know, on the um, third principle where you definitely want to tailor your upgrade, uh, upgrade, upgrade paths to the nuances of your product, you want to be careful here about um, pushing too hard or grafting upgrade paths uh, that don't necessarily make sense uh, with the flows in your product. 
because it's really easy to see users drop off on those upgrade tasks. Um, so going back to you know the products that we've already been talking about, Spotify and Evernote, these products have done a great job uh, with those upgrade tasks. Um, so in Spotify's case, they developed this 30-day free trial experience uh, where if I sign up as a new user, uh, then I can start a 30-day free trial of the Spotify premium experience. Uh, I can start adding music to my playlist and then toggle uh, those playlists to try and make them offline, which I can do in the Spotify premium uh, product because it's a premium feature. And then I start investing, 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 and then at the end of that 30-day free trial, I lose the ability to make those playlists offline again. So your music you know, that, disappears. <laughs> yeah, it disappears off you know my desktop, off my mobile, and I you know I get really bummed out by that. So I, I remember when I signed up for Spotify Premium, that was one of the big reasons why I signed up. It's because I already had these playlists that were offline, and uh, I was invested. Uh, and I wanted to keep them offline. So when I'm going on a run in an area with bad signal, then I could pull it up on my phone. Yeah. Um, needless to say, that free trial experience is pretty advantageous to Spotify. And they also have a number of other upgrade paths in their product. So they push pretty hard when the user tries to uh, do a number of certain actions within the products. Uh, for example, when you're trying to add a song to Up Next, or when you're trying to change the streaming quality, change the download quality, um, or skip an ad in uh, the product, then Spotify will prompt you and say, oh no, you can't do that. You can only do that in the premium product. And that's how Spotify um, you know, can upsell people based upon those features. Uh, Spotify also has a few more soft pushes that happen when the user tries to do things like listen to music without an internet connection or uh, tries to select a specific song from a list, then Spotify will uh, just push a banner um, and a soft message that says, hey, you know, you can get more out of these features if you upgrade to premium. So you can still do these things, but just just letting you know, you know, premium can let you do these things in a higher quality way. I love these concepts of like contextual upgrade prompts, where basically you're saying, let's identify a user behavior that indicates that maybe they're ready to upgrade or they're hitting a, a limit and we can be helpful to them and offer them the ability to upgrade so that they can enhance their experience themselves. That's something that's worked really well for us in our freemium products is instead of just mindlessly blasting the user like, hey, you know, you can pay for this product if you want to, finding the times right. when they may be more open or receptive to the idea based off of, you know, the, a feature that they need or a limitation that they're running up against and then giving them the opportunity to upgrade and making it a little bit more relevant to what they're trying to accomplish at the time. Like for example, wanting to skip an ad. I'm sick of ads, I, I want to skip this thing. You know, okay, this is a good time for you to start paying for this product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think timing is really critical. You wanna catch the user in a moment where they can truly see the value of Spotify Premium in, in Spotify's case. Uh, but the user has to be willing to see the value 
of upgrading. It's like it's like there's a light bulb that goes off in uh, you know people's heads when they're using the free product and they uh, you know hit the limit. And like oh, like this can really change my experience. You really want your um, users in a freemium product to think that way. Yeah. So while we're on the theme of talking about Spotify and Evernote, how, do, how does Evernote fare in this world? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. So Ever, Evernote is uh, more um, productivity centric. So it has different kinds of limits than uh, Spotify does. So where Evernote really shines in terms of its upgrade paths is it limits uh, free users uh, based upon space and based upon uh, devices primarily. So for the free basic account in Evernote, uh, you can store up to 60 gigs of notes and photos, media, that kind of stuff. And you can store up to two devices. Uh, so basically uh, w what that means is you can link uh, your Evernote um, app, app um, across two devices. Uh, you can have your desktop and you can have your phone, but you can't add a third desktop device, for example. Now, uh, the device limits part of uh, these limitations is uh, fairly new. Um, Evernote just implemented these limits last year, and that actually caused a lot of pain and frustration for, for free users. Uh, because there's been a lot of long-time Evernote users uh, who've been using the product for free. And all of a sudden, you know, they realize they can't access their Evernote on their phone for some reason because they got locked out of it. And uh, Evernote tried to assuage those users uh, by adding this 50% off premium offer uh, for anyone who is affected by the device limits. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is a this is such an interesting one for me. I think that like two things that stood out to me when they made this change, the first of which is like how much more difficult it is to impose a new freemium limitation on a product after it's already fairly matured and you have a pretty big user base. Uh, and then second is how actually how well it worked. <laughs> Even though they yep. upset a lot of people, if you ask most premium Evernote users what made them upgrade, they will be like, yeah, you know, I never had a reason to upgrade in Evernote until they figured out their freemium model and they put that device limit on there. And then I was like, crap, now I have to upgrade. It's worth paying for. Um, so Evernote actually struggled for a little while to figure out how they were going to crack the freemium code. And it seems to be that the device limit is what did it for them. Yeah, it seems to definitely have augmented Evernote's uh, growth trajectory a lot. And I'm really curious to see, too, you know, how people responded to that 50% off uh, premium offer, you know, if that was, you know, what got a lot of people over the hump, or was it, you know, just the device limits? Yeah. There's also uh, a few other limits that Evernote um, has where they will uh, have a couple of uh, features on the premium products that are a little bit better than the basic accounts features. So for example, they have offline notebook access uh, for just the premium uh, parts of the product. They have the ability for users to search for text and PDFs and annotate PDFs. Their browse history uh, shows up in the premium parts of the product. Uh, so Evernote does also upsell users based on those more advanced features and functionality. But um, I suspect mostly uh, power users get excited about those feature limits uh, more so than any other users, uh, just, just because they're a little bit more niche. Yeah. Okay. So 
once you've gotten to the point where you've marketed, marketed and grown your freemium product, the next step is usually getting into the process of optimizing it over time, figuring out how you can really get that engine moving in an efficient way. Usually what this means is just launching a testing program on the product or the upgrade funnel or whatever. How do you do that? Like where, where do you start when you've established your product, you've got a pretty good user base and you're ready to start optimizing it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think launching a testing program, um, I want to caveat is really only a thing you want to start doing after you achieve product market fit with your freemium product. And after you have already, um, you know, developed your product to a point where it's mature enough that you can add in these new upsell CTAs and upgrade paths, um, and you, you can have enough resources um, to start a testing program. And by resources, I mean having uh, marketing, analytics, uh, development, and design resources. Uh, so typically, a product needs to be uh, pretty mature. Um, at the point of starting a testing program. Um, but diving right into it, when you want to launch a testing program, you want to first develop a model for how the pro, uh, for how the product grows. By model, I mean develop a quantitative model as well uh, as well as a qualitative model for how the product grows, you know, how many users are coming into the uh, top of the funnel, um, what are the uh, different steps of the funnel, and what are all the conversion rates of all those steps. Uh, and you want to be able to slice the model by uh, different audience groups, um, and you want to be able to optimize those different um, upgrade uh, paths and messaging based upon uh, those individual um, audience groups or segments. The second thing you want to be able to do is have really great logging and analytics on the back end. And I cannot stress how important this is uh, because if you do not have good logging and analytics on the back end, then you won't be able to uh, track all those different steps of the model that you develop for uh, how the product grows. And you won't be able to track all the steps of the conversion funnel. So you need to have uh, that solid uh, logging infrastructure. And what does a solid logging infrastructure look like? Uh, you wanna be able to uh, connect the back-end financial metrics of your product with uh, the front-end UX metrics uh, so you can see the full end-to-end -end funnel. Uh, so you want to be able to connect, you know, are uh, users hitting your page uh, to are they, you know, clicking to the payment forms to are they converting to a paid subscriber. subscriber. So typically, um, for uh, new freemium products, when they're just getting started, uh, some tools that uh, they might consider um, are Mixpanel, um, Amplitude, Looker. Uh, those are all examples of uh, analytics tools where uh, they already have off-the-shelf solutions and they have a developer um, and API library available for you to hook the off-the-shelf solution into your product in uh, slightly more nuanced ways. Awesome. Um, and after the logging and analytics implementation, then you want to establish an experimentation framework and tools. And that just means uh, being able to develop a sprint planning process with your developers and designers that's more focused on experimentation than product development. Um, and you know you can have a conversation about uh, you know 
uh, development and process in a whole another podcast. Uh, there'd be enough content there to talk for hours on, but um, I'll just keep it brief here by saying that the primary difference uh, between an experimentation development process and the product development development process is the experimentation development process is going to have much faster sprint velocity. It's going to be a lot more iterative uh, than the traditional product development cycle because you're um, making these smaller changes uh, to the product, uh, these small tweaks to the messaging, to the CTAs, uh, to the UX on the pages, and uh, you're uh, learning from each of these small changes and iterating based on those. So, uh, you know, with the right experimentation frames, a framework and tools, uh, you can start executing on uh, the actual hypotheses you have. And using that logging and analytics implementation, you can start reporting on how well those experiments are doing. And you can see how that changes your conversion funnel. Awesome. So I think we are just about out of time. Uh, I want to go through some quick things that I think we can take away from this. The first being that whenever you're thinking about building a freemium product, you want to understand what the benefits are and what the downsides are and whether or not that aligns with your strategy. If you feel like freemium is the right way to go, there are several different models that you can take. The main thread between all of those models is that they're going to be based on usage, feature, or seat limitations. Sometimes uh, you can just monetize users and not necessarily have limitations. Other times you could do like a time limitation, but that's a little bit less of a freemium case. Evernote and Spotify have so many examples uh, that you can learn from in terms of how they acquire users, how they retain users, what the cost of doing business is. When you're ready to market and grow your freemium product, you want a frictionless sign-up, you want your product to be sticky so that users retain, and then you want to have really good upgrade paths so that the users can go through the process of buying the product easily. And then, after that, build in some good analytics, get together with your team around uh, launching a testing program and a process that's going to allow you to do that quickly and iteratively, and then start learning about your audience and how you can improve that upgrade path over time. And you're well on your way to freemium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dexter, thank you so much for, for being on the show. I learned a lot here. Uh, I'm sure that everybody listening did as well. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, learn about what you do at Dropbox, where can they reach you? Definitely. Uh, so they can reach me on Twitter, um, at DexterYZ. Uh, that's my Twitter handle. Awesome. I will put a link to that in the description. And if anybody listening is not already familiar with Dropbox, wants to sign up, play around with it, I will also link to Dexter's Dropbox sign-up flow uh, in the description <laughs> as well. <laughs> uh, much appreciated. Yeah. If for any reason you want to get in touch with me, uh, we have an email address. It's hello at uxandgrowth.com. I'm also on Twitter as well. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a quick review on iTunes. That's super important to the growth of this podcast. We love that you guys are listening, and we want to make sure that we keep delivering the type of stuff that helps you do better UX and do better growth every day. Other than that, thank you for listening and have a great day. Yeah, thank you guys.